Now, this time last weekend, a few of us were tramping on the root burn. That photo's taken at the end of the tramp, so just looking a little tired. And uh, as we tramped up the root burn, we got as far as the falls hut, which is just at the top of the bush line. So that's just actually above falls hut and falls lodge, and we're just looking down on there. However, the next stage up to the Harris Saddle was closed uh, due to snow, avalanche risk. Some of us were going to tramp up to the Harris uh, Saddle and then back down on the Sunday. But we did get an hour or so up that way. It was a wonderful opportunity to have a break and, and get out in God's creation with some really good guys and enjoy the fellowship and meet new people in the huts as you do. Now, one of the techniques trampers and mountain climbers use during very icy conditions is to rope themselves together. As we were talking and swapping stories about tramping as you do in the evening, uh, it was shared about a young man who went on a tramp in South America where he had to climb this ridge with a guide, a ridge like this, a razorback ridge, that was so narrow that it was barely a foot width wide. And on either side there was a steep drop-off. And that's why the guide and this young climber were roped together. And the instructions were this. If one of us falls, the other has to fall the other way. Because if one falls, there's just no way that the second person is going to be able to stop the other one. They'll just both fall. Imagine that. Imagine if you're the young man and your guide goes to the right. What goes through your mind? It's like, oh, I'm going to have to fall to the left. <laughs> Fortunately, they did not have to pick up that skill. I tell you what, though, being roped together when you're climbing uh, is for safety and it means you can go from adventure to adventure to places you would never be able to go safely by yourself. And it's similar with church. By ourselves, if we are isolated climbers or isolated Christ followers, we are at great risk when it comes to our spiritual health. We are at risk of falling off the edge of our faith if we journey alone, if we do not connect with a local church. Being tied together as we follow Jesus, that means tied together with each other, with fellow people in our church, we can support each other and live out the adventure that God called us to. You see, I don't want to be settled with a mundane Christian walk. God has an adventure for each one of us, and it's going to look slightly different, maybe completely different. But he has an adventure for you that you're going to be very excited about. But if you try alone, it's like climbing a rock face, inexperienced by yourself. There's great risk, which is why we need each other. Though it's a cliché, whether you be mountain climbing or in church, united we stand and divided we fall. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at unity in your word today, we pray that your spirit will stir us, open our hearts and minds to hear your word for us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up our journey through Ephesians at the beginning of chapter 4. The first three chapters, Paul has been laying a foundation. been talking about all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ are ours in the heavenly realm. And then Paul picks up in the next three chapters how to live this out. What's the practical outworking of being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms? He starts in chapter 4, goes through chapter 5 and chapter 6. So verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, 
urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is the second time in the letter that Paul emphasizes that he's writing from prison. Paul has paid a huge price to be an apostle, to write this letter. He has scars, he has wounds, he has chains. And so with the authority of an authentic walk with God, Paul is urging the Ephesians to live a life worthy of all the blessings that they are receiving. Living a life worthy. And that's what Paul's writing about in these next three chapters. And he starts off by calling the church to be united. Imagine all the other things he could have asked the church to do. He could have asked them to to love each other, to go out there and evangelize, to look after the poor. He could have asked them to do all sorts of things. But the very first thing that Paul asks the church in Ephesus to do is to be united. And we shouldn't be surprised because this is the heartbeat of Christ himself. But I jumped the gun a little bit. Let's hear Paul's call for being united. And this is what he writes from verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See what Paul's praying for unity for the church in Ephesus. And they may be united. And as I said, this is the heartbeat of Jesus himself. You see, on the night he was betrayed, in his final formal prayer with his disciples, what does he pray for? Well, we'll find out. John 17. Verse 20, this is Jesus praying. I pray for these followers, that's the disciples, but I am also praying for all those who will believe in me because of their teaching. So that's everybody else who's a Christ follower. The apostles taught, and then this, the teaching of the apostles has been handed down until us. So Jesus is praying this prayer for us. And what's Jesus' prayer? Remember, this is the night that he was betrayed. You could argue this is the most important prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples and for us, and it's this, verse 21, Father, I pray that they can be one. Jesus' heartbeat for us is that we may be united. As you are in me and I am in you, I pray that they can also be one in us. So Jesus is praying that we may be united together and united with him and our heavenly Father. And there's a wonderful result, and that result is, then the world will believe that you sent me. What a powerful witness it is when a local church is united. When when new people come in the door, they can taste, they can feel, they can see a church that is united. And when they do, this is an answer to Jesus' prayer. I mean, Jesus prayed that prayer on that night and the Bible tells us that he is at the right hand of the throne of God interceding for us. And one of the key prayers he's praying for us in Cromwell is that his followers, his brothers and sisters will be united. Now we can learn two things as we look at Jesus' prayer in John 17 and then back in Ephesians chapter 4. The first thing is being united is a gift. It's the prayer of Jesus and the gift of God that we be united. 
However, in Ephesians, it tells us that we must maintain that unity. So we don't create unity. It's a gift from God, but we are responsible for maintaining that unity. It's a little bit like this. Let's imagine that there's absolutely no way that you can afford a house. It's never going to happen. You can't afford a house. And it so happens that a relative dies and leaves you their house. But there's a stipulation in the will. And the stipulation in the will is that you must maintain the house, which means you must pay the rates, pay the insurance, keep the section tidy, organize any repairs that need to be made. It's a little bit like that with unity. Okay, we can't be unified. We're too, there's too many rat bags among us, including the preacher. You know, we have selfish ambition. We come from different backgrounds, different expectations. We're a ragtag bunch, just like any other local church. And we can't be unified unless it's a gift from God. But the Bible's very clear that we can maintain unity. In the same way that that young person couldn't afford a house and it was given to them, but they can maintain it, that is us as a local church, the gift. You see, being in unity with each other is a gift from God. And how that works is in Ephesians chapter 4 to 6. There's a bit of a list. And now this list is what keeps us unified. And you'll see in that list that it's very clear that we believe there is only one Spirit. There is only one Lord Jesus Christ and only one God and Father. So we believe in the Trinity. One Father, uh, one Jesus, one Spirit. And that keeps us unified. That's the basis of our unity. We also believe in one baptism, which means we believe in the work of the cross. You see, the baptism is a very personal experience of Christ's work on the cross. Jesus has died, and three days later, he was raised from the dead. In baptism, we die with Jesus as we go under the water, and in baptism, as we come out, we are raised with him. And so baptism is a very personal experience of the cross of Jesus. And we believe in one baptism. Now, this is the basis of our unity. We believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One baptism, the work of the cross. We are not unified just because we might attend this church on a regular basis. That's not the basis of our our unity. We're not unified. We don't have unity just because we happen to be Presbyterian, belong to that denomination. We are not unified just because every four years we tick the Christian box in the census. Our basis for unity is our holding to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being the only way and baptism, the work of the cross. There's no other basis for unity apart from this list we see here in Ephesians 4 to 6. And this, as I said, is a gift from God. However, maintaining this gift is very much yours and my responsibility. So how do we maintain unity? And this is a big question because probably if you've been a Christian for a while, you have been associated with a church that's had a time where it's been disunified, where there's been factions and it's awful and there's chaos. Think of the Corinthian church that Paul was dealing with about the same time. Disunified, chaotic. So Paul's writing here to the Ephesians. No wonder he's putting it first on his list. The priority, our priority, is to make sure that we maintain unity. 
Fortunately, Paul in verse 2 makes it very clear how we do this. Verse 2, how do we maintain unity? With all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So this is our responsibility. This is how we maintain unity in the local church. Let's look at these three heart attitudes, humility, uh, gentleness, and patience. So humility, what's that all about? Well, it's not being shy. Some people think that humble people means that you must be shy. That's not what humility is at all. Some people think being humble is putting yourself down, either in your own head or in public, in front of other people. That's not humility either. Being humble is restraining our self-focus so we can focus on the needs of others. Our default is, in any situation, to think is, what's in it for me? And that's just how we're wired. Instead, we must take the focus off what's in it for me, but to what's in it for others. How can I, how can I help John through this difficult situation? How can I, how can I bless Jane so she can flourish in her ministry? Taking our eyes off ourselves long enough so that we can think of others. We're tempted to thinking that being humble is putting ourselves down in our own mind in particular. But being humble is seeing ourselves as God sees us. Seeing ourselves rightly. So how does God see us? Well, God sees us as we used to be broken, but now he's repairing us. There we are, we're a work in process, a project. God saw us as sinners, but now we are forgiven. God used to see us as outsiders, but now we are dearly loved. We used to be orphans, but now we are gladly adopted. Humility is seeing ourselves as God sees us. And of course, when it comes to humility, we can't go past Jesus' example himself. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 29, this very well-known passage, Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Lowly in heart is an old-fashioned term for humility, for being humble. Jesus was a humble man. For a church to be unified, this needs to be our default setting. To maintain unity in any church, it's vital that like Christ, we are humble, lowly in heart. Uh, While we're in Matthew 11, we also notice that the second quality Jesus explains or declares that he is, is that he is gentle. And so it's no surprise when we turn back to to Ephesians chapter 4 that we see that gentleness is the second heart attitude that we need to bring to our church life together. Now, gentleness is not the same as being weak. It means dealing with others with kindness instead of roughness, with compassion instead of being demanding, with encouragement rather than bullying. Now, being gentle means we still stand up against bad behaviour. We still call out bad behaviour. We still stand up against bad thinking. You know, we don't let bad behaviour and bad thinking, because we're gentle, we don't just let that go over our heads or let it happen. We still confront what we need to confront. But we do that firmly and in a measured way. We do not confront with aggression or be abusive. We confront in a gentle way when we need to only when we need to. 
And we think of Jesus' gentleness when dealing with the woman caught in adultery. And I spoke about that a couple of weeks ago. And we remember how Jesus is in the temple teaching and religious leaders bring to him a lady caught in adultery. And they say, well, the law, Jesus, the law of Moses said she must be stoned. What do you say? And we remember Jesus' wonderful response, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And so her accusers, they melt away. But then notice how gentle Jesus is with this lady. Where are your accusers? Do they condemn you? And she said, no, they have gone. And Jesus said, well, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. John chapter 8. Notice how gentle he is. You know, He's firm with the lady, and he calls out bad behaviour. Don't commit adultery again. <laughs> but he's very gentle with her, unlike her accusers. Okay, who were bullying her, weren't they? They were rough with her. They were not gentle at all. They were just using her to score a point and try and trap Jesus. Jesus was gentle but firm. And the third hard attitude that the Bible tells us we need to bring to a local church is patience. Now, I like the old-fashioned word, long-suffering. Don't you like that word? kind of has that bit of a, I'm a martyr feel about it, doesn't it? Uh, long-suffering and all that sort of stuff. But it does sum it up well. We are long-suffering with other people's faults. We are slow to criticise because we realise that spiritual growth takes time. You cannot rush the moulding of character. All of us need our character moulded and shaped to be more like Jesus, but each one of us is a work in progress. And some of us, including the preacher, is a bit of a slow learner. So thank you for your patience with me, your long suffering. However, Jesus also adds a lovely little bit of extra there to take away that martyrdom that we love to have. So instead of us martyrs who like to grumble while our patience has been tested, notice how Jesus says at the end of verse 2, bearing with one another in love not bearing with another in spite or grumpiness. (laughs) And so for a church to be unified, there needs to be large doses of patience, bearing with each other in love. And that's how a church is unified. How? By us exhibiting humility, gentleness and patience. And if we get it right... Man, if we can get this right, if we are a unified church, if we go back to Jesus' prayer, remember, a unified church is a huge witness for him. People will know God is here. People will know something authentic is happening here, something special, unique. Someone coming through the door, be able to smell, taste, feel that something's different when we get humility, gentleness and patience right. At first we have to work hard at it, but I pray that it will get a stage that it will just be second nature, that we will have these attitudes and bring them to our worship and our ministry together. So let's start pulling all this together. Uh, Paul's finished kind of the theology section of his letter and he's right into the practical stage. And he starts by encouraging, exhorting the Ephesians to be unified. The Bible makes it clear that we are unified when we hold to the fact there is only one God our Father, one Christ our Lord, 
and one Holy Spirit. It's this belief in the Trinity that is the basis for our unity and also our baptism. The work of the cross made personal in our lives. This is the basis of our unity. Jesus' prayer in John 17 makes it clear that, well, this is a gift. As he's praying now at the right hand of the Father, he's praying that the Christ followers in Cromwell that worship under this roof will be united, that they will grow in humility, gentleness and patience because it's with humility, gentleness and patience that we can maintain the gift of unity. Let me finish with this. A story is told of a little girl in an African tribe, which is very small, probably 18 months, and she wandered off into the tall jungle grass, and she couldn't be found. And although the village folks searched for hours, they couldn't find her, and it was getting late. And there were real fears because of the coldness of the night and predators that came out at night. Until one of the villagers suggested that they hold hands and form a line and walk through the grass, and by this time it was dark. And they did this, and then there was a cry. The little girl was found, and she was safe and well. You see, the villagers had the same goal, didn't they? To save the child. But they weren't united. They were just searching everywhere. But it was when they were united that it made the difference. And it's similar with us. It's not good enough for us just to come every Sunday. You know, we come for all sorts of reasons. Maybe just for the morning tea afterwards. Maybe because we've got some friends here. It may be for whatever reason. But until we are united, we will not be able to be used by God to rescue people. Until we are united, we won't be able to follow the adventure that God is calling each one of us to. Because it's when we are united, and as we stretch in our faith, that we know other people in this church have got our back and will pray for us and support us, and we'll be doing the same for others. So the challenge from God's word today is from Paul, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to live a life worthy of your calling. How do we do that? We do that by being unified and following Christ together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the teaching in your word that helps us understand the importance of being unified. Help us, Lord. You know, we have such selfish ambition and mixed motives within our hearts, Lord, and we confess that, but we also confess that we want you to work your gentleness, your patience, your humility into our lives, that we may be unified and be an amazing example, a witness to Jesus in this community, and that we can live the adventure of following Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.